Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello, uh, welcome to the Shapes of Stories podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, and yeah, very excited to share with you my guest on this episode, which is the wonderful Holly Matthews. Um, Holly is has... Uh, doing a lot she you know, she's, she's done quite a lot you know she's known as a, a vlogger but not a vlogger that I kind of roll my eyes at because I say you know we talk about it with Holly you, you kind of get these vloggers that just kind of are vlogging about anything and everything you know um whether it be making a sandwich or making a smoothie or a coffee and you know Holly's the, the shares with you the real shit and um she's been through so much you know you know, she started off um, acting at a really young age. You know, you may have seen her on uh, Bikey Grove, uh, Waterloo Road, uh, Casualty. Um, yeah, but ever since then, she, she's kind of had a, a very different story to tell. Um, she went through an emotional journey with um, her husband, Ross, who had brain cancer. And, um, you know, and one of these things that, you know, it, it kind of just... It's, it's difficult one to talk about, but, you know, she was able to share the journey of, of that experience um, through her vlogs. And, you know, she got a bit of stick for doing that. But, you know, she, she's very candid about and open about being able to talk about the stick that she got, how she was feeling through that um, period. And she's just amazing uh, at helping people through their grief and um, their problems they're having. She's not a counsellor, but she is um, a no-bullshit self-help coach. Um, which is which is what I what I feel people need more because she's not one of these people that are going to let you wallow in your in your grief. Um, it's okay to have bad days, but then it's about getting back up. And you know, Holly talks about that um, very openly in this um, chat with me, which I'm really happy to show you. Um, yes, yeah, so be sure to check out Holly's stuff for the Happy Me Project. She talks about the work that she does. Uh, really nice girl, you know, she did a podcast, I believe, with the True Geordie as well, which I've, which I have watched, and yeah, just, just, um, amazing to hear her openness about what she can talk about, and, um, and she just doesn't give a shit, to be honest, she just doesn't, you know, she does it her way, and she's not going to do it any differently, and, um, that's really refreshing, you know, I'm, I'm really fond of Holly, you know, I love her videos, I love her, um, posts that she writes you know she, she's great and she's a Geordie you know she she's a anyway I think you know I'm gonna sort of uh, level into the episode of Holly now because we we kind of start with a bit of a Newcastle reference so without further ado um here is my chat with the wonderful the inspiring Holly Matthews Holly Matthews, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. How, how's it going? I've got to ask you this before we start, though, because, you know, I know you're a Geordie. 
I know, but I know you have a few affiliations of different football clubs, but are you a Newcastle United girl at heart? I'm absolutely Newcastle United. Absolutely. Yes. Toon Army. There is Toon Army in my house. Everything's black and white. Well, actually, you can even see in the top that I'm wearing is black and white. Black and white. It has to be. We don't have red and white in my house. My children are Sheffield Wednesday fans, though. Yes, of course. Which is, yeah. which is fine. Um, but also, they, so they don't like red and white either because of Sheffield United. So we just don't have that in our house. It's a definite black and white household. Good, good to, good to stick to your team. I know we don't have much to shout about, but, the, you know, it's good that you're... you're... <laughs> no, no, we have nothing to shout about whatsoever. <laughs> just pride. Just, just pride like, of the city. Well, Alan Shearer played for us. <laughs> that's about, that's yeah. about as far um, as it goes. And at one point, we were like 14 points clear at the top of the the, um, the premiership and then ruined it. And we that's pretty much as... Yeah, we bottled it. That's the pretty much <laughs> just the height of... I mean, that was my childhood growing up in Newcastle. It was all football. It was. Yeah. Yeah, Keegan. I love it if we beat them. Love it. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite. My favorite time in football. All that. Of course, yeah. Um, So, twenty twenty been been a weird year. How's it? How's it been for you? It has been an extremely weird year, hasn't it? Um, Do you know what I was talking about with my friend this week? And in fact, I think I did a post about it on um, Instagram. But a friend and I were talking, and we were saying, in almost hushed tones, to be honest, that this year hasn't been that bad in many ways, which sounds ludicrous when the absolute chaos is around us, but I've learned so much um, how to zone in into your own space and deal with the bits in front of you and not overwhelm yourself with the bigger picture. And in fairness, the friend I was talking to um, has also gone through a lot of trauma in her life. So we were both like, this year ain't that bad, is it really? Like, it's all right, isn't it? And so I appreciate like your, your listeners will may well not feel the same, but ultimately, we can only base it on our own experience. My own experiences of, of this year is I miss people. I miss being around people and my family and the people that I love. My world, um, my work is online. So I was in a good position anyway. So actually, this year for me has been far busier. Bearing in mind, my work is in self-development. It's been far busier than it probably was even last year. It just means I haven't been out the house but it's been a year where I've found that I've gained a whole new audience of people who never knew that they needed to work on their self-development until a global plague hit. And then when a global plague happens, you realise that you might have some anxieties underneath um, that were, you know, maybe not showing themselves because you were quite distracted beforehand. And so actually I found that we've been largely pretty good. I mean, I've got my two daughters, my girls, Brooke, who's nine and Texas, who's seven, and they have definitely, it's been challenging for them. And homeschooling yeah. is just not the one at all. Um, that is not, I'm not a fan of the homeschooling and the constant need to get snacks for everybody like throughout the day, always, just 24-7. And for the for my daughters, they've had some anxieties around, um, well, just the fact that they have had experience of death and loss means that uh, people talking about death and loss in their space, not that I would, but other people will, you know, they'll overhear somebody talking about the death count or something lovely like that. And so for my kids, it's actually been, that's frightening for them and that they then worry that I will die and that something will happen to people that they love. So there's there's definitely been a lot of anxieties, but, you know, we've we've managed it. How have you been? Yeah, it's been okay. But the thing is, I think you've got to avoid certain things. Like if you watch the news for 45 minutes... (laughs) You're you're gonna yeah. you, you know you're gonna be depressed when you when you, after yes. you've watched it because you you have, 50, 
15 minutes coronavirus, then a thing called Brexit. Like, I'll just let you know how Brexit's doing five minutes later. And then, and then you have Donald Trump saying, what now? Okay, well, there we go. And then you have the, all this, um, the, the divide with the Black Lives Matter movement. There's all that sort of protesting and stuff going on. You watch the news for 45 minutes and you're like, the world's shit. <laughs> like, what's of going course. on? What's going 100%, on? 100%. 100%. Like, there's one thing I say to anyone that I work with and anyone that I love and care about You've got to be ruthless with what you let into your space. You've got to. And the news, it's unnecessary. I'm going to be put out there. I've never been a person who's, I'm not an ignorant person. I know what's going on in the world. I, you know, I, I read history books and I, I'm interested in our, you know, political background and what's going on in the world. I am interested, but equally, I still have to know what I want to let into my space at any given time. And actually, for me, I've realized that things like the news, you know, I don't even need to, I don't need to hear, I don't need to see that. I'm still going to get information from my friends who watch the news and from negative Sue on the school run, who's going to want to give me some kind of information about what's going on in the world. Someone that will tell me, and I've educated my people around me enough for them to recognize that I create a bubble for myself, my, my bubble of safety that, you know, I protect my space to a ruthless amount. I don't need to watch the news. They will tell me, oh, Holly, just so you know, we've gone into lockdown. All right, okay. So what does this mean? Okay. Holly, we're in tier two now. You've got to do it. And I have people that tell me, I don't need to sit and watch endless slaver from some politician, Boris Johnson, who, in my own opinion, have zero faith in. You know, I don't need to see that. I don't need to. It's not going to make me feel good. And actually, ultimately, in my day-to-day life, it it doesn't affect me in 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 major way me hearing what he has to say is probably much more likely to anger me than anything else yeah so i think we all have a few negative suits in our lives don't we you do you do get that person that kind of goes lawrence 653 people today it's peaking again second wave and it's just like well thank thanks for that Thanks, Sue. Thanks, thanks, yeah. thanks for that, Sue. We're, we're, that's lovely. There's always those people, and you know what? You have to be you have to be careful of of those people, and you have to know when you have them. It's not about you know. It's not about yeah being being horrible about Sue because Sue's doing the best that she can as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing the best that they can based on what you know what they have in their locker, and so's Sue. But that doesn't mean that you have to be around her all the time, and that doesn't mean that you have to let her negativity into your space, whoever your negative Sue may be. And I think it's important. And that we remember that we've got to protect our got to protect our little space so that we don't feel rubbish. Yeah. Well let's let's talk about um your business, the Happy Me Project. Um mm. have you with it being such a weird year, have you had quite a lot of people come forward to you like help me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes yeah. is the at the beginning, so the Happy Me project was, you know, started after the death of my husband Ross, as as you well know, and and it was it's always been my biggest thing with self development is let's make make it accessible and not this big deal and not this big scary thing that we just talk about it in the same way that we would go down the gym or we would we just talk about our mental health and how we can make sure that we're looking after ourselves and and I want to make it accessible. So at the beginning of the year, what I found happened was that I did exact all of the things against everything that I know to be good ways of looking after yourself and I started to watch the news and I started to feel a bit rubbish and overwhelmed and like oh my god there's a global pandemic there's nowhere to hide ah and your brain goes and runs them up and I started to feel that and I was like hang on a minute I feel crap like what am I doing what am I doing that I wouldn't that I haven't done in previous difficult times now my most difficult time the death of my husband I can compare it to that and go well you got through that and you you dealt with that so what were you doing then to get through that? And what I realized in that, in that time was that 
what I did during that difficult time was I created, I didn't consume. So I wasn't consuming in the same way at the beginning of this year, when we went into lockdown, I was consuming. I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a, a doer, I'm an action taker. So I'm thinking, right, what's the information that I need to get through this pandemic? And I was, I was consuming and I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't creating in the same way. So I thought, right, what I need to do is I need to, find ways to give back that's you know the, the helper high that we get from helping others and so the one thing I can add during this time is I can help other people to work through stuff I can you know I can give them tools and things like that and so at the beginning of lockdown I decided that I would go live in my Facebook group every single day bar weekends or boundaries wise have to have weekends off so I am um, you know, every weekday I went live in the group and we talked about every single type of self-development subject. And I was giving out tools and we were talking about resilience and meditation and mindfulness and, you know, what do you do when you're having a rubbish day? And, and we worked through stuff every day. And what happened with that is that I had, I mean, that group wasn't really a very big group and, and it wasn't, it was used for people who came to workshops and things like that with me. So it wasn't a very active group. But what I realized doing that during um, during lockdown was that so many people need this stuff. And there's now a really big, I think it's about 2,000 people in that community now who have sent me messages since saying, I couldn't have got through lockdown without that group. I couldn't have got, not knowing that I could check in at every day, 10 o'clock, and you would be there and we'd be talking about how to deal with stuff and you would listen. And it it's not about me, you know, being... I, I never ever when it comes to self-development I never want to be somebody's crutch it's not the same as I'm not someone's mom I've got my own children but I want to give people the tools and what happened was that there was just this I think everybody really reflected on their lives so much that not only was I seeing people going through you know being part of the online the free community but I was seeing people do my courses online I was you know, I've just recently launched the You Got This Academy, which is a six week program. And I did that at the end of the year because I felt like as we went into that new stage after, you know, September and, and then before our second lockdown, I realized that we we kind of had got to the stage now where we're like, this is not going to be a short term thing. Like this is we need to all look at our lives and what we want and what we don't want. And so I felt like that was the right time for those that wanted a bit extra and wanted to work with me a bit more. Um, you know with a in a smaller group and so we're doing that at the moment but it's I've just found that so many people that never consider self-development have come to me and went I just thought it was all a bit rubbish but now I feel rubbish and I don't know what to do about it because before there was going down the pub and there was going out with my mates and there was distractions and now there isn't distractions and I'm in my house and I can't see my people. And now, it, you know, it was certainly interesting to see the difference between extroverts and introverts as well during this time. I, I class myself as a confident introvert. So I'm very confident. I've no, no, quite, I'm not shy, but equally I get my energy from being alone. So yeah. it, it was never really a big deal for me in terms of being on my own. However, this length of time, even the introverts are like, I need some people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I even, even I'm feeling it, but I think it was more the extroverts that get their energy from being around their people and being social that really struggled to suddenly not have that interaction. It was like, you know, in the, in the normal world, the extroverts might be the ones that are like out there and like confident, whereas actually the introverts were like, we got this now. We got this stuff. We got the lockdown stuff down. We've got this. We're, we're going to come into our own. So it was interesting seeing how different people dealt with it. 
Yeah, for sure. I never classified myself as a hugger, but I'm actually longing to give someone a nice hug. <laughs> like usually when someone gives you a hug, you're like, oh, this is a bit awkward. I'm not really too sure what to do it's with like myself. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, you know, I really want to sort of give one of my best friends a hug or family member. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. It just kind of makes you appreciate those little things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you're sort of known for being a vlogger and I've had so many people um you know interested coming on the podcast and you go oh here we go another vlogger another vlogger and all, <laughs> all these all these bloody vloggers that want to come on and talk but like you know I, I think with you it's your uh I'm trying to use the word your vlogging life is very real it's very raw mm-hmm. um you know you, it's like no bullshit it's not you know getting a coffee hashtag bless and all that stuff it, it it's yes you know and so I mean how did the I mean you you were obviously you know you were um blogging blogging during you know the um illness of your husband um, but you were you you did some vlogging beforehand as well didn't you yeah well I mean I came from an acting background so I was always in front of the camera when I was I was 11 when I started in tv and so being in front of a camera has always felt a very safe space for me it's and I, I don't know how you know I'm sure a, a psychologist would have a field day with that but I I grew up normal school all of that you know and then being on set was always my space where I felt like I could be myself and which is ironic when I was acting and I was literally pretending to be somebody else but it felt like I was in my zone and in my flow and and that always felt like that so actually when I got older and you know the whole new wave of being in front of you know of everyone's famous everyone's a vlogger you know as you say and you know if I talk to my children about being on telly they're like so <laughs> so like everyone's on telly what yeah. do you mean um so I started I mean I did bits and pieces of vlogging on YouTube and I didn't really get it and it certainly wasn't you know this was years ago and the first thing I did was I was doing this was before vlogging but it, my channel my YouTube channel became famous because famous is not the right word became like it became a channel like a viable thing because I used to do accent videos so yes, it was actually just for nice. other actors <laughs> Yeah, and I just did, like, they were so rubbish, like, they were, but I, I remember I was doing a Liverpool accent, and, like, just doing it for a friend, for some, like, who wanted to do that for a play or something, and I didn't know anybody, re- I didn't really understand what it was, I didn't realise we had channels, I didn't get it, mm-hmm. so I just put it out there and not really thinking about it, and then it was a friend of mine who worked for um, somebody who looked after YouTube channels, and she said, you know, your videos got, like, 150,000 views on it, and I was like, what do you mean? Why? What has it got a hundred? And I was like, refreshing it. Like, there's a glitch on this. There's something up with that. That's what's gone wrong there. And because of that, I think I realized that YouTube was a, a space to do stuff. And so initially it was very light stuff. But I, as I developed in my, I guess, my social media life and, and I, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm such a rubbish word to use, but authenticity is a really high value of mine. Mm-hmm. So being your truest self, even if that is uncomfortable for other people, is really, it's a high value for me. Like I, I don't want to hide and I don't want to feel like I'm wearing a mask. And because my work is me, that's an interesting space because you have to protect yourself as well. So that although I share a lot, I don't really share everything it just might feel like that. I share a lot of really true stuff. And when Ross was, when my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer, initially like that was, you know, that was out there in the world and it was kind of hard not to be, it was in newspapers and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and then when he was going to die, when we actively knew he was dying, I went into this weird space of judgment of myself and like, 
But if I share what's going on, it was this initial feeling, if I share what's happening and, and how I'm feeling, it will be an overshare. You know, we get an overshare. It's too much for people. And then I sat with that thought and that uncomfortable feeling because there was the one side of me that was going, actually, this would be beneficial for me to talk this out in front of a camera. And that, as I said previously, that's my safe space. That's my space of being able to get out of my head. That was my safe space as a kid to get out of my head yeah. when I was you know, going through those teenage years. I was there. That was my comfortable space. And so I basically thought, fuck this. I don't care. I'm going to put it out there because for a few reasons. One, at some point... I'm going to want to remember what the hell happened here because I am not in the headspace of understanding or remembering none of this. Two, my children will want to understand at some point and I want to explain to them in a better way, in a more real way. And helper in me wanted to share that experience because I appreciate that when we share our personal stuff and we share stuff that's uncomfortable, our, you know, our dark, shadowy self that we don't want to share, the shameful side of our life or the the fear, the, the scared side, the weak side, when we share those vulnerabilities, it gives other people space to do the same. And I just thought, you know what? If I want, you know, I looked online and I looked for people like me talking about the death of their husband at 32. And I was looking for that and all I saw was misery and your life is over and wear a veil and like everything is sad. And I just thought, if I can't find what I need then I need to be that then I need to be the person doing that because somebody else needs to see that and that I mean that all sounds very maybe that sounds like I'm trying to be too grand about it but it was there was lots of things coming into play there but I just knew that I couldn't pretend that it wasn't happening because authenticity had to come first and I just felt I just need to talk it out and whoever's uncomfortable with that then fine they, yeah. they don't have to look they don't have well, to look like that's yeah. it I was going to say, Luke, because you have had to deal with some shitty comments as well from people, mm. like, you know, and I mean, how do you, when you're going through such a, a traumatic time like that, how, how does, I, I mean, are the comments just, you know, you're, you're, you're so wrapped up in what's going on that it's just irrelevant or, or does it get to you seeing those comments? I think I didn't, I didn't see comments when Ross was actively dying when I was in the hospice and stuff. I didn't really read anything. I really tagged in things, but I didn't really read anything. I think after sort of a year, maybe in the months after Ross's death, there was the odd one that maybe on the wrong day got in, but largely I'm pretty level-headed about that kind of stuff because I just think, how sad that you would need to comment that. Like you must have some really bad stuff. Because I know my situation's not good. Like, I know that that was painful and crap. And most human beings would look at my situation and go, God, that's awful. I hate that she's having to go through that. That's awful. I would hate to go through that. Yeah. And so if somebody doesn't feel that way, and what they do is go, you're oversharing. And it's disgusting. And how can you talk about your husband? But if you do, if you can talk about him, then maybe you didn't love him or boo-hoo, your husband's got brain cancer is one of the comments I've had. Like if someone feels like the need to write that, my logical brain goes, then they've got some really big stuff going on. And I really yeah. I worry, I worry what's going on for them. I my instant reaction to crappy comments is, and you can anyone can use this when they get them themselves, is hmm, that's interesting is my first thought and I just use that as a stopper for my you know my um I guess animal instinct of like wanting to go at someone and have a row is to go mm, that's interesting I wonder why you've responded in that way I wonder why what I said triggered you I've actually got someone on my Instagram at the moment that we're having a back and forth because I did some hilarious 
I will say that was very hilarious TikTok that I did. I love your TikToks. Where, well, thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> I amuse myself and no one, I mean, I have a very low following on TikTok and it's probably because I'm over 30 on TikTok. <laughs> but I, I find, so someone's commenting at the moment uh, because I swore in front of my children. I mean, they were part of the TikTok and they found it very funny as well. Um, but this woman's very, very triggered by it. And it's interesting. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, we're having a little back and forth, but there's part of me that's like, isn't it funny, like how cross she is about it? And and she really is. She's quite cross and she's quite angry and she's like going back and forward with me. And I'm just like, today I sent her a message. So you're all right. Because I think in another world, we'll probably get on. Like you seem mm-hmm. quite sassy in that. Like in the real world, you wouldn't speak to me like this. You no. just wouldn't. And it's just that that online space is an interesting one. But when I was going through everything in, you know, right in the thick of it, I didn't notice it afterwards. There was the odd day that it got through and I just thought, fuck you. Like, do you know what? But I'm not passive. So I will say fuck you to somebody and I won't feel uncomfortable with it. And I won't care that business-wise that might not look great. Because I think, do you know what? The reason that people come to me as a coach is because I will tell you, I will love punch you. I will give you no bullshit talk. I'm not going to you know, there is uncomfortable parts of life. And, you know, when it comes to death and loss, there's loads of uncomfortable stuff. There's the fact that, you know, you're watching, I'm watching my husband die. And there's one part of you that's desperately doesn't want them to die. There's one part that's going, I don't want this to be happening. I want to cling on to every breath that is there in their body. And then there's the other part of you that's going, that is no longer my person. And I want you to go now. And that is the most uncomfortable conversation because no one wants to say that. No one wants to have those com- you know, conversations about death and about loss and all of those things. The, people don't want to imagine that after the, the, you know, the death of somebody that you love, that you can find laughter, that you can find love, that you can find happiness. It's too uncomfortable for us. And if someone's not talking about that, and that's why I do, then people feel all this shame in their own space because they think, well, I had that thought and I did that. And Am I wrong? And so the more, this is why I find, you know, social media can be a very positive place in many ways for that. Obviously there's lots of negativity, but again, it goes down to what you're going to allow in your space, your choice, right? I don't have to look at everything on social media. My bubble on social media is really largely pretty lovely. The only time it doesn't, I mean, an interesting um, thing on this is that I don't go on Twitter too much. And recently, my daughter has been not sleeping very well. So I've been sitting in her room for a long time. And um, I, w- I kept going on Twitter because political stuff was happening, obviously, in America. And it's a bit yeah. more newsworthy on Twitter. So I was, I was having a look at you know, what's the general consensus of opinions. And I, this is a very prime example of just, just be careful what you put out onto the internet because you never know where it's going to go. And I commented, something came up about Russell Brand and he'd offended people, and it was such a silly thing. And I was reading it, and I can't even remember what it was now. He'd said something, and people thought he was being patronizing about working class people. And I was like, he's working class, though. He was, it was a joke. He's a comedian. Like, it's yeah. clearly a joke. Whether you like him or not, it was not a serious comment. It was definitely, like, Russell Bland, Russell, Russell Brand's slavery, flowery thing. And anyway, he was posting something. And so I commented a couple of things, like, Get a, like get a grip like stop being so triggered and overly offended like it was a joke like yeah. have some perspective there's a blooming plague going on and um, I made a few comments thought nothing of it and then got a google alert to say that it would be quoted in like the daily Ma- mail or something Holly Matthews bl- and actress 
defends Russell Brand. And I was like, it was literally just me late night tweeting, like Donald Trump, like, you know, just wildly tweeting. I thought, oh, for God's sake, you never know what's going to, when you put something out on the internet, people, you've got to be careful. You just don't know what's going to be, what's going to, you know, be out there. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I feel like with trolls, though, people that just do just like give you shit on social media. I don't think yeah. you're ever going to find a happy or successful person that does that. Like, no. they even, there's, no. there's two there's, there's two reasons they do it. Either one, they've got some kind of mental illness, which is serious and, you know, they need appropriate help. Or two, they're just quite sad people that, that just that just like to bring others down. Like, I mean, you don't you'll never find someone that's like, you know what? I'm really happy with life right now. I'm successful in my job. <laughs> yes. So you know what I really like to do is I like to go on Holly Matthews Instagram and give her shit. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't. It's you don't. Happen. No. Well, one of the, the the guy who had written on my um, YouTube channel once, boohoo, your husband's got brain cancer. Bring out the tiny violins. You're through to the next round, is what he said to me. Wow. And it, there was loads of them, right? And he get and he sent loads, and and I got into a bit of a back and forth again. Not a wallflower, so I do have you know I will. I will be honest about like my feelings. And I was going to him, are you okay? Like, do you need me to call somebody? Cause that is really a very nasty thing to say. Like, that's not very nice. Like, are you all right? And we got into this back and forth and he ended up sending me this whole email, actually emailed me and told me this big sob story about how he'd had an awful year and how trolling people online had become his way to like get out of his head and just like, just a bit of a cathartic pastime for him. Mm. And then he also told me he was a policeman in Northern Ireland. And um, would I be his life coach? I mean, I refused because I'm not that big a person, but um, <laughs> I'm not that big. I mean, I'm, there's, there's a level. I was yeah. like, I don't think I can really impartially coach you here. But um, it was interesting for me. It was a really interesting lesson that the person that was saying such like heinous things online at me, that you said, it's just a sad man. He was yeah. going through some stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not great. I mean, it's not a great way to pass your time, but hey-ho, you know, yeah. we, we've got to, we don't have to accept things from people. You don't have to get into a row with people. You know, you you can just go completely the other way and go, are you all right? Like, mm-hmm. human level, like, are you all right? Because yeah. you're being... It's, like, it's just like being a bigger person, isn't it, really? And just not yes, giving them... Um, it, not exactly. giving them the reaction what they want, you know. Yeah, yes. that, 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 is, that is the thing. Um, so to sort of rewind a little bit, going back to Ross. So I guess before we go into Ross's story, like how did you and Ross meet? So we met, um, so I was obviously an actress at the time and I, outside of acting, used to do things like promotional type modelling where you give out sweets and you look all like like a pretty girl giving out sweets, right, essentially, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, you know the type, you know, grid oh, girl know types. Well. <laughs> yeah so I used to do all of that kind of stuff because it was dead easy because you used to just book a couple of days get a ton of money and then go back to doing what you did so it was really flexible and it just so happened that at the other side of the, the country Ross was had just got into the same thing in fact he got into it because he had someone that he knew had done it and he went to a meeting and he said he turned up and he looked around for this meeting this interview for to become part of this agency and he said he looked around and there was all these fit girls everywhere. <laughs> and he just sat down at the table and Ross was on the autistic spectrum. So he was very direct and had Asperger's. And so he sat down at this table to this like interview that he was having and just went, I don't care what I have to do to be part of this, <laughs> but I want to work with these girls yeah. here. There's lots of fit girls. And he actually said he'd made a decision 
that um, he wanted a foreign girlfriend, is what he said initially. So when he met me, he was like, well, you're pretty, f- I mean, you've got a Geordie. Geordie. basically <laughs> foreign. You're basically foreign. Yeah. So we actually met on a job for Pim's, the drink, and it was a festival. And I actually had a boyfriend at the time. Um, so all of the drama, and I'd been with him for six years, and it was a very ended relationship, you know, very young and ended relationship. And I met Ross, and it sounds the cheesiest thing in the world. And I was never that person. I had so many boundaries about things like that. Um, And I met Ross and we instantly clicked and just had very similar, similar values in life. We're very similar in our outlook, Um, even upbringing, you know, his dad was a a footballer. So Ross's dad was a, a played for um, Sheffield Wednesday and Villa and and lots of um, big clubs. And so he kind of grew up with eyes on, him a little bit and obviously mm-hmm. I grew up on television and so it was that sort of similar level of where you were from there was kind of always a platform in a way so even that in itself was there was lots of similarities there and um, we met I went back home we met on that job went back home split up with the boyfriend um, that I was with of six years who I had a mortgage with and a dog oh, wow. and um, got on the mega bus because I didn't drive to Coventry where he was from to see if it was what I thought it was and we were together nearly 10 years and I did we did used to say um you know I wonder if people will ever go because initially everyone was like out of the frying pan into the fire what is she doing <laughs> She's, what on earth is she doing um, but I just knew I you know we used to say when do you think other people will realize how important this relationship is and it just was we were from the minute we got together ross was an entrepreneur as well he was uh, he had properties and um, he was a landlord and had his own business at the time that kit site which was all football team wear stuff and we just spent our days pottering around together drinking cups of tea and having a laugh uh, we used to say those that play together stay together and we just we had a laugh like we enjoyed each other's company and we were together all the time and so actually in the time that we had which and I remember Ross saying this in 2016 when he had his second brain surgery. He said, this on paper is not going to look enough. It's not going to seem as important as a 50-year relationship. We see all people mm-hmm. that have been together all that time. It's not going to seem on paper as important when it's eight or nine years. That was the time it was then. And I just feel lucky. I feel lucky and even with everything that happened and Ross dying and all of the hardships when it comes to brain cancer I do it again you know people don't get that kind of connection with people in, and I'm not saying it's the only connection I'll ever have I'm not saying that you only get one shot at this in life by the way I don't believe that either mm-hmm. but I also you know believe that you have these really important relationships and it doesn't you know I don't undermine it because I didn't have a full lifetime with Ross because Ross was such a significant part of my life. Not only do we have two children together, but he impacted my life and still does to this day, impacts my life in, in many ways and the lessons that we learned and the love that we had and, and who he you know, allowed me to be. And Ross, absolutely, in terms of authenticity, taught me even more how you know to be authentic because with him being on the autistic spectrum, he was even more honest than probably most people would be comfortable with but it taught me to be that because he used to say all the time nothing happens you just say what you think nothing happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it just doesn't like people get offended that's their choice to be offended that's up to them and and he taught me loads and so yeah so we met on a a job for pims which i still enjoy (laughs) 
That's great. I mean, what was the story about your wedding? Because there's a wonderful photo of you and Ross mm. um, on your wedding day that was, did make me chuckle. So what, how, what, I don't know the exact story behind it all. So what? what... So so we got married. So we we always like anything with me and Ross. Everything was like we just it just happened very organically. So we just we nobody asked each other to marry it. We were just like oh we'll get married. Like we just always knew that we would. It wasn't a thing like that we wouldn't. And um, especially when we had Brooke, my oldest, we were like, well, we'd like to have the same surname. And we just want, I wanted that. I, I like the process of marriage. I think it's a good thing. Um, whatever people's opinions are on that now, but I, it felt, it feels more secure. And I like the idea of it. And, but neither of us, I've never been one of those women that's like, I want the white wedding. And I just, it was never, in fact, all my life, I always said, I'll probably end up in Vegas or Gretna Green. I've always said that. Mm-hmm. and I think that's probably the actor in me likes the the story I love a story you know it's perfect to be on this podcast because I have always said to myself I want to be old and tell have loads of great stories and funny anecdotes to tell people like when you know when you when you're old that you did some stuff and so there's always half of that with me and Ross and then we did initially sort of think you know is there a way to surprise people and just get married and not we just didn't want the fuss I didn't want all of the you know the drama of who sits where and what's our color scheme and like <laughs> do I'm yeah. just not for me and I'm not anyone if that's for you then do you right it's totally cool um but it just wasn't for me and so um we decided we, the thing is we thought you could just go and get married but obviously you can't you have to register it before and then, so we have to register, I think a month before with the local registry office. And then we spoke to a couple of mates of ours. One was a, a girl who would work with on promotions. So she was out and about sometimes in a day. And a friend of mine who's become a really close friend, but at the time was just a friend and an acquaintance, a photographer friend. And I thought she might quite, you know, business brain. I was like, it might be quite nice for her to get photographs of an unusual wedding. Um, and then we actually did think, do we get married in traditional stuff? Like, should you, even though you don't tell anybody, and then we decided, no, we're not going to. Now, my mom and dad, backstory, my mom and dad were punks. So when they were, when they got married, my dad was, my mom was wearing a red wedding dress and had red spiky hair. And my dad had a zoot suit and yellow shoes and like the bridesmaids had purple hair. And like, it was like a punky wedding. And in that time, you know, my mom's grandma was like Irish Catholic and like it was in a church and that was like absolutely she nearly didn't come because it was abhorrent to her that they were doing they were getting married in a red wedding dress so they so I grew up I guess knowing that you could do things differently and I was never you know my mum and dad did teach me to be you know to go against the grain a little bit and to be do what you want to do um so what I did Ross part of Ross's business was like printing t-shirts and stuff so I got him to print on a t-shirt a red wedding dress like it was like I was wearing a red wedding dress onto a hoodie and I stuck a red bow in my hair and I wore trainers high top Nike high tops and we just went and got Ross had his chef dad chef of Wednesday football shirt on and we went and got married we it was like 100 quid or something and I was furious that it was that much and then we did that and then we went and had a cup of tea afterwards in the local cafe coffee shop and then we went back to work in the afternoon. We just went, should we crack on? Like, just get on with the day. That was it. And we just text everyone and said we got married. And most people, when they saw it on social media, thought it was an acting job of mine. They'd be like, is that an acting job? So, no, I actually got married. And um, my dad initially wasn't happy. Um, and I said, you cannot bring me up to be like a renegade and go against the grain and then expect me not to do that. 
and you'll love the story. And what my dad did about six months later, he went, well, I'm having a party then. I'm having a party and I'm wearing a tux. I'll wear a top hat and I'm making a speech and I'll make you down a fucking makeshift aisle if I want to, because it's my wedding and I will. <laughs> so about six months later, my mum and dad had a party and invited everybody. And we went along to our wedding party and we all had a, a piss up and just had a laugh. But there was no pressure because it was like, it's not a wedding, it's just a party. If you want to come, you can come, don't bother. If not, it's cool. Um, but you know what I've you know a few people around me like my grandma bless I was like you'll regret it if you don't get married properly and I was like but I don't regret it because it's a funny story and I did it how I wanted to do it I don't you don't regret things that you wanted to do so yeah so we we got married like that and we did it in the way that we wanted to and his dad I think he texted his dad and said dad had got married and he was like oh sound like he wasn't even bothered and then his mom, he rang his mom and told her, and she went, no, like that. And, he, and then she went quiet. And then she went, put Holly on. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> and I was like, we did, we did get married. No one believed us, to be honest. I think they just thought we were just full of it, but that's how it happened. And I'm still pleased that we did it that way. And we also got married on um, leap year day as well. So we didn't have to celebrate it every year, like every four years. <laughs> didn't want to fuss. Yeah, well, that's just amazing that you did it your way. You just, you know, that's the thing. It's what people kind of feel like they have to do it a certain way all the time. Like, if it was me, I'd just love to get married on a beach in the middle of nowhere and just mm. like a couple of people, or whatever. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just it's just nice that you you just it was like your relationship and you guys just did that together. I think that's really nice. That was it. I, I love that photo of you guys. Um, I'm gonna yeah, you have to send it me. I'll have to share it. Or something. I will. Um, I will. Yeah, it's, a re- it's a really lovely photo for you guys to look at. Um, so you know when. When Ross's health got bad, I mean, he, he diagnosed it. It all seemed to happen quite quickly. Um, I mean, in terms of like, he seemed watching some of your videos. He seemed okay in some of the video. Like, he seemed like he was coping all yeah. right. You know, he's just doing his thing, just getting cracking on. And then mm. you know, and uh, you know, I, I was watching them and sort of reaching out to you, you know, seeing how things were yeah. going. Yeah. And but you know, and then it was just like he, he went, and it just it, it just all yeah. seemed quite. It, almost like in a month I think it was, it, did it really it go down quite yeah, yeah. I, I so it was like it was diagnosed in 2014 and we had all you know the brain surgeries the chemo the radio and all the stuff and then it was and and like you say actually the tumor was just staying still and I think we underestimate that when it's big big cancer don't underestimate when it's staying still and doing nothing just don't underestimate that because we looked at that like, but we want it gone. We want it not to be there because that's what you think. But sometimes living with cancer means that if it's still, it's good. It's just laying dormant there, not doing anything. And that's a good thing. And so actually for three and a half years, we kind of, well, for about three years, we had that. And then we, he was, so in the 2016, it started to grow a bit and they decided to do a second brain surgery. So we did that. And I think we were under the impression that we'd then be given the same grace in terms of we'd then be given that same amount of time afterwards, that it would mm-hmm. take the same amount of time to grow back. And what actually, so in 2016, his brother, Matty, um, and his his wife, they decided to move their wedding forward because of that diagnosis, because of Ross's tumor growing and because they wanted him to be best man. They just decided to move it forward. And, and at that time, we were still, you know, they, they basically the second time that they decided to do brain surgery, they decided then to tick a box to prolong, not to cure. Initially, they were, had ticked the to cure box, which is always, you know, you kind of want that to happen. So, mm-hmm. And then in 2016, they were prolonging, which is 
a minging shift in your mind but then you still you know we were still thinking well okay you know we've had this time already who knows you know there's always we didn't not have hope we never didn't and we we were very realistic as as a couple but also we were like you know there's always got to be there is always those stories of people that do get through the big go through the big odds and they come out the other side and there is those stories so why not you who knows right we'll give it a shot and then his um, his brother and um, put his wedding forward. So this would have been the October. He had his brain surgery in the August. The week before that, um, we had been told, well, actually weirdly, a weirder edge to this story is that the day we were, we were told that um, the tumor had started to grow again and it had grown fast. This was within a few months. So we knew that that really was bad news. But weirdly, the day that I was told that, I auditioned for The Voice and so weird what a weird thing they'd got in contact with me and asked me if I would come and audition privately for the voice and I couldn't have given a shit any less quite frankly but I thought then Ross you know liked me singing this and I was signed to Sony for a while and he was like why don't you just go be, be a laugh see if anything comes of it and I was like all right Sam whatever you know just for an experience like I don't like to say no to things I thought it might be an interesting experience but the day I had the audition for The Voice was the afternoon after being told that Ross's brain tumor was growing. And I went into that audition and tried one note of singing and literally nothing came out my voice. I was just like some kind of like nothing. Then just burst into tears and then sat with them for a bit. I was like, I'm really sorry. This is what's happened. I'm not like a lunatic. But there was just a weird dynamic to that day of yeah, like of auditioning for the producers of The Voice and then being like, this is what the hell am I doing? Anyway. I digress. We then, um, at the wedding, Ross and I knew that his tumour had grown and nobody else knew. So we were kind of holding this secret in, which was really hard because we didn't want to ruin the wedding, knowing that actually on the other side of this, we were going to go, this is bad. And so we were then looking to potentially do a third brain surgery. And they then said they didn't want to do it because it was going to grow. And they tried other chemos and stuff. And then it was the May of that 2017. We had went out to Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean and we had this amazing holiday. And it's weird because I don't know if there's some underlying feeling sometimes of knowing when something's not going to be great and that something needs to happen and something's important. I cancelled two things to do that holiday, which I never do. I'm so not that person. I cancelled a speaking event. And my daughter, Brooke, had been asked to potentially do some filming for this show and I said look we we need to spend time as a family I don't know why I did that it was very unusual for me to do that and we went out to um Turks and Caicos to stay with a friend beautiful you know part of the world and there was a few things on that holiday I just didn't think were right with Ross and when we came back I was like I think you need to go and see the doctor and just see where we're at with stuff and then the day before his birthday me and the girls were sat writing 32 reasons 31 32 reasons why we love daddy and as we were writing them down, he started to have a seizure. And from that seizure, Ross went downhill. Like we didn't, other people for the first few weeks of after that seizure could kind of pretend that Ross was still there, but I couldn't because he was not right. Like he was, when it comes to brain, it's difficult because you lose somebody before you lose them and yeah. they start to deteriorate and he was doing weird stuff and it was, couldn't trust his judgment anymore. And it kind of happened that he went downhill, came out of hospital. And then, yeah, you're right. It, it happened very quickly. It was really pretty much six, six weeks was the, probably the overall deterioration. And we were in the hospice for 
three weeks, two weeks, I can't remember, but we're in the hospice. So that, I think it was two weeks, maybe longer. Maybe it was a month. I don't know. I forgot the timeline. I'll check my videos. Um, we then were in there, yeah, for that time, but it, it did feel, it did feel like it was really, really quick. And from, for some people who didn't know the full extent, you know, our story and stuff, they might have, a lot of people would say, well, it, it's good that he's not in pain now. But for me, it was like, but he wasn't in pain. Like he wasn't a sick person. Like that's so weird to get your head around, but he didn't have, he didn't look for the symptoms that he was, he didn't know the symptoms he was supposed to have. So he didn't have them. Like that's it. He was just not, he didn't let anybody in the same, it's, this goes throughout his whole life. He never let anybody tell him their version of how things were going to be. And that's a lesson that I have taken from Ross. And it's a lesson that we can all do more of. Don't let somebody else dictate what your story is going to be. Your story of, let, let's look at the pandemic as an example. Your story of how 2020 is, is your version. You decide how that looks. You can tell the story of a dreadful year full of pandemic and loss and grief and tragedy. That story is there for the taking. There you go. It's there. It's an easy story. You can tell the story of, of a year that for me, my story of 2020, globally, horrendous stuff's gone on. I'm not discounting that. Personally, I've had some really good stuff happen, some really great stuff work-wise. I've been able to spend time with my children. I've missed my family. I've missed some of my people. I've missed, you know, some other things. But actually, there's been lots of good stuff and lots of growth this year. And I think that was the same when, when Ross died. It's about what what is the story that you tell of that? And because he didn't tell that story of I've got cancer. He used to say, they tell me I've got cancer. I can't fucking feel it. Like they tell me I've got it. I can't say, I can't tell I've got cancer. They might be making it up. I don't know. Like he didn't feel it every day. I mean, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing the fact when he had chemotherapy, he would vomit. He would get sick. Sometimes he would have seizures. It's not like we didn't go through that, but we just didn't, we didn't attach to that story. It was just Ross had a seizure today. And then we went and had lunch. Like, that's how it was. And I, I, I understand that for some people, that's so hard to get their head around. And sometimes when people meet me, they might see me as maybe cold, or, but I'm not. I'm just, that's how me and Ross were about stuff. Yeah. Ross, would I have Ross's voice in my head every day? You know, this week I cried over a kettle, right? So a kettle that Ross... But Ross was very obsessive because of his autism in terms of what he would buy. So he would spend a lot of time researching stuff. And he bought this kettle. And quite honestly, I've never liked it. It's a weird spout, but it was some brilliant kettle. All the reviews were amazing, whatever. Anyway, this kettle's broken this week. And I've had to buy a new one. And the grief side of my brain was going, that's sad. That's the end of an era. That's a something that Ross got that is no longer going to be in this house. That's sad. And so I had a little cry over the kettle. And then the other side of me was like, he would be saying, you are such a dickhead, like <laughs> put the kettle in, get on with it. And so I have that in my head. And so it might sound ruthless to some people, but that's how, you know, I, I live by my truth. Like that's it. I live by my truth. And my truth is that I'm not sad most of the time. Yeah. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that it's not painful that I, Ross has died and that I wish that it hadn't happened. It's just that I don't sit in that space. Yeah, exactly. And, and do you think, you know, with grief, I think some people just don't know how to handle grief and just and just mm. because you know because I think some people probably think it's really horrible what happened to you and they expect yeah. you to be this like grieving widow that you know that is going through all this and that, but you're not you're just you're cracking on with it and it's not that it's not sad it's just that that grief will always be there but it's about for you to cope you've got to surround yourself yourself with things that are good as well and that make you happy you know 
Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? I think that my ethos has always been just fill your life with so much good stuff that the grief doesn't feel as big. Mm-hmm. Fill it with so many good stories in it. And that's not, the grief will come. You don't have to force the grief. Like the grief will come when you buy a new kettle and the, you cry over a kettle. The grief will come when I find Ross's handwriting or I go to a place that the last time I was there was with Ross or, you know, the the, the, the milestones in my daughter's lives. The grief will come. I don't have to force mm-hmm. that. But equally, I don't have to sit in it or court it or look for it. I don't need to do that either. I mean, I think giving people permission when it comes to grief to live their lives, like for me, when we live our lives after the loss of someone that we love, we honor their death by living fully. Like Mm -hmm. if I sat on my ass and did nothing and gave up, and you know what, if that's what someone does, and no judgment of them, like if that's what you do, then you, you to get through it, then you get, that's fine. But equally, I don't think that I would be honoring Ross's lack of life by not living in fact, I would be, in my version of the world, it would be disrespectful of me not to just go and live and, and you know, and, and do love and find amazing times for my daughters and, and all of that. And I, so that's in my head. And I, I think we just don't talk about grief, certainly not in the UK. I don't think in the Western world we do. Mm. We're very uncomfortable about it. And so we don't know what it looks like other than that we... Um, sorry, my grandma's trying to call me here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So yeah. So we. I don't think we we know what grief looks like because grief um, is talked about in hushed tones, and we talk about it like um, you know we see it on telly, but it's always sad. It's sad emotions around grief. Right? I remember my daughter when she went to see a counsellor. One of the things we were talking about very in the very first session was how grief is sometimes hidden in anger. And that we can be really, really angry after losing somebody that we love. We can be angry at the world for continuing. How dare it? We can be even angry at the person who died. Like, how dare you die? Like, how dare Brooke and Texas's dad die? How rude. That wasn't in their plan. What the hell? Mm-hmm. And you can, but we don't, that's not a very comfortable emotion when it comes to grief. It's not. The, the you know, the whole, um, what is it? The stages of grief. You can have those stages of grief in one in breath. You know, you don't, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't go in an order. I don't think you get to acceptance. Some days you'll go back to bargaining, you know, is, is one of the stages of grief where you're going, is this really happened? And I can remember doing all of that. I remember all of those things that I've done. You know, there was a time when I remember sorting out Ross's socks after he died. And there was a moment where I went, can we not just bring him back? Like, there must be a way. Like, the logical, I'm a science-based person. Like, there was a logical part of me. He was cremated. And I'm like, we must be able to find a way. Like, the, the, the problem solver me is like, there must be a way. Like, that's bargaining. Like, those weird things come up for you when it comes to grief. People do odd stuff when it comes to grief. And I think we have to lack judgment on it and lack judgment of ourselves on how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. Because it, you know, and, 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 I heard somebody speaking uh, a TED talk. I've forgotten the lady's name now. It's gone out of my head. Um, but she wrote a great book about it called, and it, you'll be able to Google it, no doubt, but everybody died. So I got a dog, a really good book. And, um, and when she was talking in her TED talk about grief, she was you know, saying that you can't have grief without love and you don't have love without grief. And they're so intertwined. You when you grieve somebody, it's because at one stage you love that person and you love them and Absolutely, you miss them. Yeah. 
And we have to live in that vulnerable space because in order, you know, like I said, in order for me, I've had all this pain in the loss of Ross, but I do it again because of the love that we had and because of the experience of that. And that's a really fucking vulnerable space for us to be in as human Mm -hmm. beings. But I personally don't think you have the, the dizzying heights of what life can be unless you live in that space of raw vulnerability, whatever that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And just, and just sort of talking about um, the girls, I mean, how was it How was it for them sort of dealing with that? Because was it, how, I mean, how do you as a mum deal with that whilst losing, the, you know, Ross? How do you um, sort of go through the challenges of, of that as well? That's, that's you know, that's ongoing. And it's it's been challenging in many ways because children, obviously, they were very young. They were six and four when Ross died. And so, which... It's, it's mad to think about that now, but that like that they were so little, but they initially children deal with it very matter of fact. Often they, they don't really even acknowledge what's happened. So how can it so not tangible is it to a child's death? And so they want explanations. And so I had to have seriously difficult conversations very, very early on. I mean, when Ross was in the hospice, Brooke not only didn't have me there, they didn't have me. They because I was in the hospice, they didn't have Ross, they didn't have me, they were with my sister at home. That's already rubbish and scary. And I remember Brooke ringing me and saying, mom, I really miss you. But I know that if you come home, that means dad's died, doesn't it? And I was like, that's so smart for her to work that out. And I had to say, yeah, that that is true. And she, you know, children will ask these questions like that, adults won't ask they will ask me and we still have these conversations even though we've had these conversations lots we will still have these conversations on repeat and they will say things like you know sometimes at each stage of their life they'll they'll have obviously thought something new and their understanding of life becomes more so new questions come up for them and they'll you know texas my youngest asked not long ago whether she had made ross have cancer and i said why do you think that's other no that's not the case but why do you think that and she said because I think I stood on it. I stood on his foot once, and then she's in her head. She's mm. thinking, "Oh, maybe that. Ha- what? Maybe I did that. Maybe I hurt him, or and that somehow gave him cancer." And so, children, you have to have these conversations on loop. But they're also very resilient, and I am confident that my girls will be more empathetic and understanding of others because of all of that they've gone through. And you know, we have very, very open conversations. They've asked me what he looked like when he died what his skin color was they've asked me what that means like how did his heart stop and what happened and what what did he say what like they will ask me questions that no adult would ever ask you no like they will go places that you don't really feel comfortable but as a parent you have to and that doesn't mean you know I've said to the girls from the beginning sometimes one of us will cry and have a hard day sometimes all of us will feel sad sometimes none of us will and we have to honor the the fact that sometimes someone feels sad now as a parent of grieving children it can be a right you know it's it it comes out at different stages in different ways and we're certainly dealing with my oldest having a lot of fearful thoughts and a lot of anxiety some of that will be grief related some of that could just be normal life stuff that children go through mm-hmm. and it's kind of sometimes picking through what is to do with what and what you can do about that and and you know we talk about Ross all of the time so it's never a, a gray area in fact this week was quite a big week for Brooke my oldest because 
she at school they were trying to pick a, a, a charity to do something for and she decided to pick Might and Hospice which is where um where Ross died and she doesn't over the last year or so she started to get braver about sharing that her dad has died to people if if it, she needs to whereas before she would just deny it she wouldn't talk about it at all understandably it's a horrible conversation child to have and this week she um they had to come up with a poster or a rap or a song or, or whatever about their chosen charity and she did a rap because she's cool <laughs> <laughs> about um and i mean in the loosest sense of the word by the way <laughs> um, she did a rap about and it, there was a line in it where it said um my dad died in my and like she she meant she referenced it and mm. actually that was a big deal for her to be able to share that with the class yeah. because that's massive like that's massive for an adult to have to to say those words and so for a child it was really big and but we talk about that and we'll say you know I'll say to her you know you'll know better now how to deal with someone when somebody else around you has somebody that dies you'll be better equipped to know what to say and you'll know what not to say and what does it feel good when someone says it and you know, so I, I just think children are so resilient and it is an ongoing process and I know that each stage of their lives there will be a sadness that their dad's not here but I just try to always keep the conversation open and always keep it that I will say constantly you know your dad wouldn't have liked that or your dad would like that or you know who would like that and we, we say it a lot so and I know for, for them being so young their memories will be a lot of them will be memories that I place within their heads because their memories will diminish and that's really that's hard it's hard for my youngest because she doesn't remember in the same way and she's starting to come to that realization as she gets older that she doesn't have the memories so clearly to her yeah is that what right? it's good that you got the videos there hasn't it so they can when, the when they're thing, older yeah. enough, they can watch back yeah yeah that's that's one good thing and I took so many photographs and stuff like that and you know as much as Ross hammered me at the time I was like no because I knew that these were important. I knew that I always knew when Ross was diagnosed that there would be a chance that he wouldn't get through it. So we took lots of videos and lots of photos and those will be a comfort. And, and sometimes they'll, they're sad because you, you don't want to look and because then you miss the person. But I think, I think there will be something that will be, you know, certainly if anybody's going through that, that's listening, just take photos and say, say the things that you need to say. Cause I don't look back and think I didn't say it. I never, there's nothing that I haven't said to Ross that I should have said. That that's a comfortable feeling for me. I'm glad I got the shit out of my head and yeah. in, in, in kids. Yeah, that that's great. And I mean, obviously, you know, we're sort of approaching Christmas now. And you know, how did you guys deal with your first Christmas without Ross? Because there might be people, families mm -hmm. that have lost, even with the coronavirus, they, someone might have lost, yes. you know, um, a loved one recently this year. I mean, how did you guys cope with that first Christmas without Ross? I think the first Christmas we were with his mom. So we were still at her house and um, we were actually doing up the house that I'm in now. Ross and I bought it the year previously. So we were actually still doing that up. So we wanted to be with her, one, because she was also grieving and we wanted to be together. And, you know, Christmas is a nice distraction from it, actually. Like you kind of put, I think it's often the, the quiet after Christmas that was harder. For me, it was New Year. New Year was harder because it meant I was going into a new year that Ross wasn't in. That was weird. Right, yeah. That was like, this is a year he's never been in. He hasn't even been in this year before. He's never been in 2018. That's weird. And so that's it. I mean, I think you almost have to prepare yourself. I think the Christmas day itself can, you surround yourself by the people that you can surround yourself with. And it's lots of distractions of fun stuff. And certainly if you've got kids, 
it's all about Father Christmas. There's, there's no, mm-hmm. it's not the same. Like kids don't deal with it in the same way with that. They're just thinking about nice Christmas stuff and they're happy for the distraction. Um, but I think it's just being kind to yourself during that time. And for us as a family, the, the year after, I think it was a year after my mom and dad came here. So there was still someone here. And actually last year was the first year that we had alone for Christmas. It was the first year, Christmas morning, shall I say, that we had alone. And it was nice. And we decided that we would do in this house, we would have, we would come up with some new traditions. So that was an important thing that this was new traditions. This was the new version of what we would do. And I guess that's different for everyone. We didn't, Ross and I didn't have any serious traditions around Christmas. In fact, Ross didn't enjoy Christmas until he had kids at all. Um, he just didn't, he was like, just didn't really like all the fuss about Christmas. So he, but when we had kids, he started to enjoy it. And um, so but we didn't have really strong traditions. So it was kind of nice. And I sat with the girls and I sat down and I said, right, we're going to create some new Christmas traditions. What do you want them to be? And they came up with one that we write a story every Christmas Eve. We write a Christmas story together. So we do that. And we take a picture by the Christmas tree so we can see how they've grown each year. So that's what they decided their Christmas traditions would be. But I think that can be nice. It's kind of it's a, a sad thing to do something different when your person's not there, but maybe then for some people, they want to do a something that honors their person in some way, whatever that is, you know, I'm not religious. So I don't have like a God type thing, but you know, if, if people want to in some way, bring their person into their, their new tradition so that every year they have a moment where they think about them or whatever it is. It's, it's so individual, but I actually think that Christmas is quite a nice distraction in a weird way. But I do think, you know, as as best you can in pandemic times surround yourself with people in yeah. some way yeah because- I, you know what I, I was just going to say it just reminded me when um we were just talking about the kid your kids and stuff like mm-hmm. I mean I could sit with um with Brooke I could see you and Ross in in Brooke but Texas mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't know Ross but I could see Ross's face totally oh my god all in so Texas much. it's crazy she's well that's the thing like you and Brooke's man Brooke's mannerisms and Texas is Texas so like him to look at she's very like Ross's sister Ashley and um and Brooke's got the mannerisms so when she's if I'm honest when she's being sassy and stroppy I say I don't and I'm like <laughs> oh oh hell no um <laughs> I just make me laugh but there's it's so much it's so weird how so much of your behavior is not just taught that it's really genetic it's weird like as you sort of think how can that be because she wasn't around to see that that way of being but yet that's in her still and and I tell them that you know I always say like you're so like your dad when you do that or your dad like that or your dad used to do that your dad used to like eating that or whatever and and I think they quite like that and I think that's the thing you have to remember if you're a a person who's you know lost their partner and you you have children and stuff that your person lives on in them and I always remember Brooke saying when when my grandma died and I asked the girls what they believed about life and death like did they believe in an afterlife because I don't I don't believe in heaven um, but they know that they can like I would say to them I have no idea whether there's a heaven or not who knows there might be the pearly gates there might be something completely different I don't know do we live again it's it's your life I nobody knows the answer and actually I was very strict when Ross before Ross died and 
I sent a video out to everybody that I knew telling them not to put their own opinions on the girls on that because it infuriates me quite honestly when people and I know they mean well but when people will say to me oh he's looking down on you and I think I fucking hope not (laughs) (laughs) do you know what I mean like as rude like I I just think it's so confusing for children and and even if you do believe in God I'm just going to offer this advice out there even if you believe there is an afterlife which absolutely loads of your listeners will no doubt about it and there's nothing wrong with it and I'm not saying I'm right you might be completely right but when you have children they are so literal and I've heard this from friends of mine who's who have also been in similar positions to me if you say to them that their person is somewhere then they are going to want to be there so if you say if you die you go to heaven and your dad's in heaven they're going to talk about killing themselves and that's a just that's an awful thing to hear and it doesn't mean they want to die not really means you want to see their person but I think that can lead to a very confusing thing and I've seen friends who've you know had gifts from heaven and I just think that's very confusing for my personal opinion you know you can choose to do what you will with that but I think it's confusing for children if you believe in heaven you I think there needs to be very clear distinction that people can't just decide to jot off there for the day because children are so literal in their understanding of what that means and you know they believe in all kinds of things so they will listen to you as parents and I just think we need to be so careful and with my girls I've just always said you make your decision on what you believe and Brooke once said to me when my grandma died she said when I asked her what she believed she said I just think that when people die the love that was in them just gets shared out amongst the people that are left behind and that's it and that's how they live on yeah. they live on in the world and I was like well I'm down with that that works for me that's yeah. cool with me and and you know I believe you know I know that energy is infinite so that is science and so Ross's energy is here somewhere in this ethos and it might not be in the form that I wish it to be in but he lives on in the memories he lives on in the love he lives on in the faces that Brooke and Texas pull at me and in somewhere he's part of this space that we are in and you know what, as people, you know, what you believe in, why on earth we are all here, none of us really know, but I just think that you can just do the best that you can. And on Ross's funeral cards, we had a quote that Ross said to me when he went in for a second brain surgery. And he just said to me, look, if I die in this, just tell them I was all right. <laughs> that's it. Like, that's it. Just tell them I was all right. Yeah. That's it. And it doesn't have to be more profound than that. We just put too much on it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's interesting you say that, like forcing any kind of faith onto anyone, no matter what you believe in. It's not for here or there. I went to a Roman Catholic secondary school, so like, it's an absolute head fuck, you know, for you know to to kind of have it scaremongered on you and no. um, confessions and, and stuff like yes, confessions, you know, having to do that and on all this. So you know, it, it's it does it can leave you just like really in a in a in a shit space. It really you know it just has to be your own decision. It can't be pushed on by someone else. Like yeah, whatever you decide to do, just do it on your own terms and figure it out yourself just like you know do what works for you um but going back to the happy me project for anyone that's sort of interested in you know working with you and sort of, I mean what kind of what do you deal with I guess on the spectrum mm. <laughs> so in in terms of what I do I'm a life coach so I don't focus I'm not a counselor I don't deal with people's deep trauma that's not really why although people come to me who have deep trauma um what we do is we focus on the right now where we're at at this point and what we can do moving forward so I talk a lots and lots about um you know all the different kinds of mental health type stuff but I am not trained to deal with you know your 
deep mental health issues. That's not what I do. But what I do is for, for the majority of people that are feeling lost or unconfident or unsure and maybe a bit sad and stressed, that's where, that's the, the space that I work in. And we look at, okay, and in initial sessions with me, if people are working with me one-on-one, we will look at why stuff happened. You know, we will talk about all of that stuff and we'll just get it out on the table. And then we'll go, okay, so we know all the reasons why this happened. This is where we're at right now. So what can we do moving forward to work through some of this stuff? Because we can't change the fact that that stuff happened. I can't change the fact that Ross died. Nothing I can do. I can bang my head against the wall. Nothing will change with that. But what I can control is what I do now. And so I work with people in that capacity. And so I have lots of spaces people can work with me, whether it's they come into my free Facebook community. I go live in there every Monday now. And that's a total open forum. We talk about all different, I usually pick a subject and then we talk about it and we, we, you know, chat it out and people come up with their own thoughts. And, and, And often people in that group will come to me and say, do you know what? I'm really struggling with um, saying no to people was something I was talking about this morning. Saying no, yeah. to I don't know how to say no. We're talking about that. People pleasing. I'm a people pleaser. And we'll talk about that and what you can do and some boundaries you can put in place. And we'll talk about whatever it is. And so there's that free space. Then I've got two courses that people can do that are what we would call evergreen courses, which just means they're there for you to go and grab. These are online. The Happy Me One, 21 days of audios, videos, and a workbook dead straightforward, bite-sized, chunkable stuff. You stick your, you know, your headphones in, you listen to some concept, you write a little bit in a workbook, and each day for 21 days, you're learning something new. That was the original course. And then there's the Happy Me Too, which is all about self-belief and confidence. And that's a, a slightly bigger course. Um, you can do that in your own time frame. But that course is based on what's going on on the inside. Why don't you believe in yourself? And then also, how can you look confident on the outside, in which case I use my acting hat and teach you what actors know about the physicality of looking confident, because there's no point doing all the work on the internal stuff and still walking around showing up in the world like you're unconfident, because the world will then still respond in exactly the same way to you and you won't get the response that you want. So that was the second course. I've also got some recorded meditations and things on there that people can grab. Um, And then the next time I've got a group coaching program and um, program even, um, which is called the You Got This Academy. That's six weeks of going from all the fear to getting clear. So going from all the confusion, I'm lost. I don't know what I want to do with my life or whatever specific thing that you want to work on. And through the six weeks, we gain a bit of it. We, we create a roadmap of where you want to be. I'm actually in the first Um, first goal of that right now but I'm going to be opening the doors to new students in February so that will be something that I run a couple of times in the year but that's for people that can't quite afford to work with me one-on-one but want a bit more of an intimate you know working space so we've got 30 people in that group now so that would be max for me to be working with Mm -hmm. and then if people want to and they don't want to work in a group capacity but they want to work with me one-on-one They send me an email. I don't work with everybody. I only work with five people at a time because I put a lot into my one-on-one clients and we can work on anything. Generally, people come to me in two spaces. I often work with female entrepreneurs in a mentoring type capacity. So I work with a lot of female entrepreneurs and they usually come to me with lots of confidence type issues as well. There's a lot of people pleasing, not being, not having very good, having very fuzzy boundaries and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then I have the other capacity, which is um, anybody really who comes to me, generally women, because I am one, but that's not to say that it's, no, it's not a closed door policy. And usually people come to me for, for the same kinds of reasons. When they're just not feeling great, when they're not sure where they're feeling a bit lost, where they're not sure where they want to go next, and they need somebody to hold them accountable and, and work through all of that with them. And, and so that's what we do. So there's lots of spaces that people can work with me. And I try to have it so that there's lots of ways from free to you know more intense working with me uh, to give people lots of options to be able to do that and also my youtube channel as well where there's years of of me chatting about stuff on there that might be useful for people yeah that's great because I, I think some people just struggle how to know what the next steps are when they're caught up and when you're so caught up in your own shit it, it's hard to know how to progress with that and just um you know to get to get rid of it it's for guilt for example people yeah. really struggle you could be like it's parts of my life I've, I've you know I think oh what the fuck was I doing when I was 19 years old and I'm th- and I'm 31 now and I, you, know, you still kind of yeah, go back and it? think that what the fuck was I doing at that point but you know it's okay to kind of have that accountability you know account you know count for yourself and say yeah I fucked up but the guilt oh, God, yeah. yeah guilt that you have like holding on to that guilt is just so unhealthy and it's about letting that guilt go yeah. There's a, I'm reading at the moment the Brene Brown book, Daring Greatly. I don't know if you've read that. It's a really no, good book about, you'd, you'd enjoy that. I think it's all about shame and guilt and all of that stuff. And, and she talks both about male and female shame that we carry, you know, whether it's, she talked, um, you know, I think women are definitely much more open to self-development and men are getting much more so now, but it's a new space for men to be talking about their feelings. And in this, right. she's, she's asking men, she had asked men and, um, what shame looks like to them and it was you know things like shame is not being able to provide for your family that's shame like and there's all these like it's just interesting to hear all of the common shames that we carry around and that actually how similar we all are and that we we carry all of that stuff and when it comes to things like you know the happy me project and the, the work that I do I try to the reason that I talk about my own experiences because I don't want people to feel shame. I want people to know that even with all of the knowledge that I have, there'll still be some days that I sit in my pants watching Netflix and eating crisps and feeling sad and sorry for myself. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, we're too hard on ourselves as, as people. And I know that, like I said earlier, a lot of people come to me when they don't necessarily even know what they're looking for they just don't feel great. And they maybe stumble on one of my Facebook or Instagram posts and then they start following me. And, you know, I try to be as relatable and human as possible and talk about real stuff and not filter all my stuff and and be all perfect and all that kind of stuff that you see people doing because I can't think of anything more dull and boring. But what will often happen is then people will jump into the Facebook group and they get to know that my style of coaching in there and probably they sit quite quietly for a bit and don't share and then maybe they comment a few times and then they maybe go away and actually while we've been on this call I've seen a few people just doing the happy me project I can see people logging like have just have got it and sometimes they'll do a little bit of that and they'll realize you know what this self-development stuff is actually quite good and I'm feeling quite good doing it and often I'll have people that'll then come to me a year down the line of that process and they'll go I've been watching your stuff for a while and I want to do some proper coaching with you and that's where that's where that kind of next step is and quite honestly I've never pushed anything very much when it comes to that because I just always think that people will come to me and work with me when it's the right time for them and if I'm their vibe because 
I don't want to work with people that don't get the way that I do stuff either. Like it's not, that's not much fun for me. And, and back in the day, I used to let anyone in, anyone, come on in, boundary, no boundaries whatsoever over here. And then I'd end up working with people that just wanted to play victim and they didn't want to ever move from that space because it, yeah. they got too much secondary gain from being a victim. They got yeah. too much gain. I was from literally, it. as you as you were talking about, you know, sort of being on the, in your pants watching Netflix eating crisps. Yeah. I was, yeah, you know, yeah, we all we all do it. We all have those, those yeah. shit things where you where you feel sorry for yourself I think the most destructive emotion anyone can have is self-pity because it, mm. it, it takes away everything it pushes everything away and just leave it just leaves itself being self-pity is just is is the way you no know, it's not you know it's nothing wrong with having it we all experience it but it's acknowledging that when you're having have a life, limit yeah it's, it's it has a limit, to have a limit. yeah yeah, I always say to people, don't not acknowledge your emotions, feel your pain, have your cries, sit in your pants and eat Netflix. It's not, eat Netflix, eat, not, eat crisps, don't <laughs> eat Netflix. That's confusing. Um, you know, do do all of that stuff, but then there has to be an end goal. Like ultimately for me, my driver is freedom and happiness. I just want to be happy and free and I, I want to live whatever time I've got on this planet. I want to live it in a, in a full way. And me sitting going, but my husband died. Well, that just stops me from, you know, well, sad stuff happens to me. That just stops me in my tracks. I can't move from that space. And it's not to say, it's not to put judgment on people because we are only ever dealing with things from our level of understanding in that time. We're all doing the best that we can. Even that dickhead that is on your Facebook that annoys you, she's or he is doing the best that he can. They're doing the best that they can based on what they've got. But as you learn more, as you get better, as you you know, read more books or you, you know, you follow people online and you listen to podcasts like this, as you gain more insight into life, if you still sit there in your pants, then you're just taking up space. Like, it's just crazy that to me, like, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, please do not think I'm minimizing, um, you know, I'm not talking about mental illness. I'm not talking about the, the deeper stuff that needs some more intervention. And there are absolutely, obviously certain things that need um, you know, a doctor's intervention. I'm not even a person that doesn't agree. You know, I don't not agree with antidepressants and things like that. There's a space for all of this stuff. It is not one size fits all. Some people will go and see a counselor and do CBT and that will be the thing for them. Some people want to read some posts on Instagram and some, some nice quotes on their wall and that does it for them. Some people want to go raving or running and that works for them. For me personally, counseling does nothing. Just nothing. Okay, I agree, yeah. I just, it does nothing for me, but that's because I talk a lot, as you can tell. So talking doesn't do anything for me, action does. And so I think everybody's different, but I certainly think for me now, I know that the good thing about the work that I do as a life coach and why life coaching has always interested me more than counseling. And I could have went that route. Um, and I did look into, I did an initial course in counseling and I just thought, I don't want to work with people in this capacity because this wouldn't be enjoyable for me. Like yeah. I don't want to sit going over and over somebody's pain with them because I personally think I'm not, and by the way, I'm not the oracle of everything. I'm not some kind of flipping guru here. This is my opinion and this is what I see working with people that I work with. But I think stewing over your pain constantly, rerunning that makes it perpetuate and all you end up doing is attracting more of that because you're gonna, because you're literally taking your pain and you're hiding behind it and going, this is my excuse for a living, I can't do anything because of the pain here. It's my shield, it's my excuse, it's my reason. And again, I'm not judging you for that. I understand the motivation to do that. Mm -hmm. If I sat here and went, I can't do anything because my husband died. Do you know what? Everyone would go, I can understand. 
I can understand because people are good. People are generally good people. They, they would want to be nice, but that's not going to help me to live a happy life. That's not going to help my children have a happy life. If I sit there holding up my trauma to the world and going, oh, I can't do anything because of this. And, and it, ultimately it's about radical responsibility. At the end of the day, you have a choice. You can give up or you can get back up after you cry after you've sat in your pants watching Netflix, but you have to at some point decide to get back up. Yeah, absolutely. That's really great to hear. And it's been great to talk to you today, Holly. Um, I feel like we need to get you on I'm a Celebrity in the Jungle or something. I think you'd be great on it. Would you do it? Oh my God. I wouldn't, I would not want to jump out of a plane. I can't, can't, people, I just, that's the bit I would, I'm the rest of it, I think I'd get over. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the spiders and stuff. um, Okay. But I, I, I don't know. It'd be funny. I mean, I don't know. I've always said no to reality TV. And then I realized that my life is literally on a platform and it makes no difference. So maybe I would. Who knows? Yeah. No, I, I, think, I mean, they're I going, think, yeah. let's be honest, they're going down the Z-list celebrity route now. I mean, I'm about to, I'm sh- <laughs> give me a couple of years. I'm in that jungle. There's, I mean, oh, yeah. there's, I mean, I reckon, I mean, I don't know who's in it this year. Who's in it? Uh, to be to be fair, the lineup's not too bad because is I think I don't, right? I don't know if it's us because it's in Wales and it's not the. Oh, is <laughs> the that distance. where it is? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's course, in a but... castle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've got like right. Shane Shane Ritchie and Mo Farah, um, uh, who plays Liz on Corrie. I can't remember her name. Beverly something. Okay. Um, no, yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite a good little lineup. But there's there's a few people on there that I don't know, and I'm sure you know lots of people would recognise you. Well, we'll see. Maybe what? Maybe in a, a, a couple of years. We'll see how this pandemic goes, shall we? And then it'll be, they'll be like, can we just get somebody? Oh, that girl there. She used to be on Biker Grove. She used to be on the telly. Get her in. Wally Road. Wally Road. Get her in. Get her in now. <laughs> give, give her a spider or something. Although you're not going to get all of that in Wales. I don't know what they're going to scare them with in Wales. Sheep's testicles, I think, what, what it is. But oh, I, I, I think I mean, there's there's lots of that. You, 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 you don't want them down in the face, do you? You don't, do you? But anyhow, well, I mean, what what a way to end a, end this podcast, really. Yeah. I mean, talking about sheep's testicles. <laughs> what, what, I mean, I, I feel great about it. I mean, yeah. So where can people follow you and everything in the Happy Me Project and, you know, your social media stuff? All of that. So you type in Holly Matthews into the internet. And if you can't find me, your internet is broken and <laughs> you need to phone a person. So I'm on, I hang out mostly on Instagram and Facebook. I do, I act the Tom Fool on TikTok and um, I'm on YouTube, but mostly Instagram and Facebook are kind of my, my spaces to hang out in a little bit of Twitter, but I'm probably ranting about Russell Brand or something on there. I don't know what I'll be doing. Um, but you can also go on to Facebook groups and the Happy Me Project group is in there and everyone is absolutely welcome. Anybody can come and hang out in there as long as they're in a space of wanting to find solutions and not just be playing victim because it's certainly not a community of woe is me it is a community of let's find solutions let's work through we can have a bit of a you know can be a bit upset and stuff but we can also go okay now what now what do we do so they can hang out my facebook group and all of my courses and stuff there'll be links if you type in the happy me project and holly matthews online you'll get links somewhere hopefully i've done my job well enough that that will happen and uh, please feel free to email or message me as well because i am accessible i mean i won't i won't answer if it's like midnight and you're asking me some random question which is what happens sometimes um but i am you know an accessible person so do just message me and if you have any questions i will endeavor to do to point you in the right direction no doubt brilliant holly amazing talking to you today should we finish with away the lads (laughs) away the lads lads. (laughs) (laughs) that's the best thank you
There you go, guys. Uh, she's fab, isn't she? The wonderful Holly Matthews. Um, yeah, really thank Holly for coming on and sharing her story. Um, she's just she's brilliant. And, you know, anyone that's kind of interested in hearing more about Holly and her work and how she might be able to help them, uh, please check out the Happy Me Project. Like she said, you can just Google her. You know, it will come up. And everything and everything about Holly will come up uh, once you Google her. Um, a really inspiring uh, person, you know, that, that does... Um, such amazing things and it's about helping people and giving back and making people feel good and getting them back on track so um yeah please uh follow her stuff you know i know there's some exciting things to come from holly uh, without giving too much away so please be sure to um keep following um holly matthews and be sure to follow us as well at the shapes of stories on twitter you can follow me on prestige books on instagram and you can follow me on facebook um under Lawrence Prestige. So yeah, just give us a follow. Some more excited episodes coming your way very, very soon. I want to thank Holly again from for coming on. Uh, be sure to check out her stuff. You won't be disappointed. And be sure to check out her wonderful videos featuring um, Brooke and Texas a couple of times as well, uh, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, guys, thanks again for listening in and uh, speak to you again soon.